I don't think that any photographer could create a more perfect uh, environment than than New Zealand. It's just it's got mountains, it's got beaches, it's got volcanoes, and you know every type of texture, environment, color. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, the upcoming printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frames. My name is Scott Olsen, and today I have the honor of talking with Chris Rose. Since 1993, Chris has been the staff photographer and then senior photographer for an organization called AOPA, which stands for Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. He has one of the most interesting and dangerous and exciting jobs in photography possible. I don't know about you, but ever since I was uh, a small child, pictures of the X-15 or the SR-71 um, old World War II Mustangs or Yellow Piper Cubs, the Concorde or a 747. These photographs have always been inspiring. Um, they're the kind of photograph that makes me want to rise up out of a chair and, and then go do something substantial. Not many of us grow up to be aviation photographers. Not many of us get into a field where we're taking pictures of beautiful airplanes on the ground and, more dynamically, airplanes in the sky. Chris is that person and one of the best in the industry. Uh, good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning, Scott. How are you? I, I was scared there. For, I was scared there for a minute when you said, uh, since you were a little kid, you and I was afraid you were going to finish with. I've been, I've been looking at Chris's photos. I was going to feel, I was going to feel old there for a second. Well, I have been looking at your photos for quite a long time because I am a member of AOPA, but well, it, it's you. not been that long. Um, life over in Maryland this morning is treating you well? Life in Maryland is treating me well right now. I'm, I'm trying to stay sane. Uh, I've been, um, uh, sheltering in place as most people have been. Uh, AOPA is, uh, sort of had limited capacity at the, um, at the present time. We don't have anybody in the building. We, we certainly are working from, working from home, but, uh, hopefully that'll, that'll be lifted here pretty soon. Okay. Well, let's begin with the basics and a question that is always interesting because there's so many different answers. Uh, how did you get into photography in general? And then more specifically, how in the world did you wind up getting into aerial photography? Well, so photography for me sort of, I grew up around photography. My grandfather was a photographer. Uh, my mom was sort of an avid photographer. So um, we always had cameras in the house and things like that. And um, luckily my parents always encouraged me to get out and take pictures, but um, it wasn't until college that I really started thinking about it sort of as a profession. So I ended up, uh, going to school, uh, for both graphic design and photography, uh, felt like graphic design at the time would probably be a better career path for myself. And, um, and actually when I started at AOPA back in 93, um, I started there as a graphic designer. Um, it wasn't until, uh, right after probably maybe around 2000 or 2001 that I started doing a little bit of photography for AOPA and then transitioned into it um, more on a full-time basis, um, probably around 2006, 2007. Okay. Do you remember your first uh, shot from an airplane? 
God, that's a great question. You know, I used to, so we have another uh, senior photographer, Mike Pfizer, who works, um, he works out of Kansas, but uh, he was the sole photographer for AOPA for many, many years. So I, I remember going on a few shoots with him and I'm sure I drug along a camera from time to time, but I think the first one I did by myself um, was over Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. It was a, uh, it was a aircraft called a Cirrus, um, sort of a single engine four place aircraft. And I just remember, um, it was in- incredibly cold. I hadn't really taken into account, um, the fact that it wasn't going to be 65 degrees up in the air and it had been on the ground, but by the time I got up there and spent about an hour, uh, you know, at two or 3000 feet, I was pretty, pretty cold. That's what I, that's what I remember about my first, first photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- there are two distinct sides to, uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, one is pictures of airplanes on the ground, uh, and the other is, is pictures from the air. So let's, let's take them separately if we could. Talk to me about taking pictures of airplanes on the ground. What are your goals? How do you set them up? What is, what's that world like? Well, it's challenging for one. Um, you know, air, airports in general, um, there are some beautiful airports, I mean, um, that are just very picturesque, but uh, airports tend to be a little on the industrial side. So when you have to position an aircraft somewhere on an airport um, and and position it so you're not taking a picture of, you know, some uh, broken down hangars or, you know, some industrial equipment or another office building or something behind it. Um, you have to get a little bit creative. So from time to time, we'll, uh, we'll take the aircraft, you know, off airport environments. Sometimes we'll take them out to grass airstrips or uh, try to land them. You know, we've even landed out in the desert and places like that. And and also you always have the option of putting it into a really nice, clean hangar and, and going for a more, uh, like a more industrial look. But it can be challenging. Um, but you use basically the same, um, you know, some of the same principles that you use for air-to-air photography on the ground. You still want the uh, aircraft positioned in, you know, favorable lighting. Uh, oftentimes we'll have the airplane started so that you see the propeller, uh, spinning and, and give it some, uh, a little bit more, you know, dynamic presence, but, uh, it just, uh, it just takes, you know, a little trial and error to get, uh, to get that right. How much time would you say you do in art direction pre-planning for a ground shoot? Well, for, you know, it depends. We, we, anytime we're doing a feature, uh, article in the magazine, we'll sit down with the art director and, uh, the editor. Um, and also, you know, if we have, uh, other, other crew that are going to be involved in the shoot, like other pilots and things like that, we'll sit down and we spend, you know, a couple of hours probably, um, kind of doing a pre-planning session, talk about what we're trying to capture, We'll look at the weather. Uh, we'll look at uh, Google Maps is uh, a great resource. Um, I also use a um, use an app on my phone. I can't remember exactly what it's called at the moment, but um, it, it'll show you the position of the sun in any given uh, in any given environment by overlaying these like sun maps over top of Google Maps. So. We can look ahead even a couple of months and see, you know, well, you know, there's going to be some hangars blocking the sun here, or we should position it over on this side of the airport. So things like that are all considerations uh, that we talk about in these pre-planning meetings. I think every landscape photographer out there now is wondering what that app is. Uh, I will find it. I've got, my phone is right here in front of me, so I am I am looking, I swear. But uh, no, it, it's a great resource uh, for that kind of uh, 
for that kind of planning. It's actually called Sun Seeker. Sun Seeker. Okay. And it works. Uh, it works on the phone. It works on iPad and things like that. So, and it, it's it's a really cool program. I, I it might not be free, but it's cheap. So, when you're doing groundwork, do you bring a lot of lighting along with you, or do you just go with natural light? Uh, I always carry lighting with me, um, in the form of like, you know, hand strobes. Um, but there are times when you just know that either the weather's not going to cooperate or it's going to be an unusual situation, or you're going to be lighting a larger environment. Um, you know, every once in a while, one, one of these sections or special, um, additions that we have of the magazine every month is turbine pilot, which caters to more of the kind of business aviation, the private jet, um, sector of the industry. And, uh, so if we're, if we're shooting a jet, for instance, um, obviously a larger, much larger piece of metal, um, and we'll also do interior shots of that. So in those cases, we'll typically bring some, um, auxiliary lighting. And so for that, for those purposes, I, I typically, uh, <clears throat> I carry three, uh, three Westcott FJ 400s, uh, monolights with me and, um, you know, just power them off of battery packs. The other side of your world, of course, is is the one that I find absolutely mesmerizing, and that is the shots uh, up in the air, the air to air shots. Um, tell me about that world. You know, tell me how you go about doing any of those shots. Tell me what you need. Tell me what the problems and and the benefits are. Um, well, you know, it's it's a pretty small world to begin begin with. I mean, I don't I don't know how many people do. That air, you know, air to air photography full time in the United States, but I would, I would estimate it to be a a pretty small number, probably less than 20 or 25 people that are doing it full time. Um, it does require, it, it requires a much bigger team, um, usually than, than like a, a wedding photographer or something like that. Uh, because you have to have pilots, you have to have ground people, you have to have people, you know, just logistics people to help move equipment and aircraft. Obviously you need two aircraft. So you need, um, what we call a platform aircraft, which is the aircraft that the photographer is going to be in. And that's going to consist of an aircraft that you can usually remove a window from in very, very rare circumstances. Do we want to shoot through glass? It does happen at times. But we're going to look for an aircraft that we can remove a door from or a window from or something like that. And obviously, you have to have a pilot to fly that aircraft. And then you have to have a safety pilot um, along, uh, you know, next to the pilot in the front. That safety pilot's going to do things like working the radios and looking for other traffic and, and things like that. And then I'll be in the back with the door off. And then you've got the subject plane, which then has to have a pilot and a safety pilot, too. So that's. You know, that's five people right there. That doesn't include the ground staff and everything else. But it's a it's a coordinated effort between a lot of people. So and not only is it a coordinated effort, it's an effort where everyone in some cases are putting their lives in other people's hands. So you need to have a great deal of uh, of trust and faith in those in those people's skills. Uh, there is there is one shot I would love to hear the full story on. And, and it's a shot from the recent total eclipse. Because in in that photograph, or for that photograph, you are in absolute darkness, flying in formation, and you have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to get this shot. Yeah. Uh, so if you could you know, describe the shot for people and what it took to get that shot done. Well, you know, th- this, this one shot um, really started months prior to... Um, 
the day that we actually took it. Uh, we, we were sitting around in a meeting uh, discussing upcoming features for the magazine and uh, someone, I, I can't exactly remember, it may, it may have been me, I said, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be funny to do a shot of an Eclipse jet, which is, um, there, there is a small uh, business jet called an Eclipse jet. I said, wouldn't it be kind of quirky to do a shot of the uh, an Eclipse jet during the Eclipse and this sort of gave way to a discussion about, you know, how could we talk about the eclipse, which was obviously coming up in a few months. Um, and it really kind of blossomed into an idea that we would send photographers and editors across the country and s- sort of take an inside look at how general aviation was um, being either being affected or contributing uh, to people's enjoyment of watching the eclipse. So um I ended up going to Carbondale, Illinois, um, sort of a strange out of the way place, but uh, Carbondale happened to be the area that the peak of the eclipse would be the longest. And I think it was something like, you know, two or three minutes that it would be in full eclipse. Um, So we based out of Carbondale, uh, we brought out all the aircraft that we needed, including the eclipse jet. Um, I realized that during the eclipse, it would get dark. And I was thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to, I can't slow my shutter speed down enough to capture this jet in the dark. Um, because then it, that gives way obviously to a lot of vibration issues and things like that. So, uh, I, I devised this, uh, this scheme to, um, sort of hardwire in a couple of mono lights into the aircraft, um, and so I had two 500 watt Westcott monolights in the back of the aircraft. They weren't the ones that I carry with me now, but, um, there was sort of an older set. And I thought, you know, if I could, if I could fire this thing at the right moment with everything lined up, we just might be able to illuminate that jet enough, um, and still keep the eclipse, you know, in the background. So, uh, there, there was no, obviously there was no chance for trial and error here. We were just going to have to, you know, put our best foot forward and hope that everything came together. So we launched out of Carbondale uh, for the eclipse, probably a half an hour or so before. And we got into position. We got the eclipse jet into formation with us. Um, and we were, we were fairly close. I mean, we were probably, uh, you know, 15 or 20 feet from each other going, you know, 150 knots in a circle <laughs> uh, as this eclipse was happening. And the whole, you know, the lighting, you know, especially up there where you have even less atmosphere. I'm um, not that, not that we were really high, but you know, we didn't, we weren't subject to some of the, uh, the haze and stuff below. And it really gave an incredibly eerie feel. Um, you know, you could feel sort of the pressure difference. You could feel, you know, the lighting starting to change. And, um, and so I, looked up and, and turned on the strobes and set the camera to the, uh, you know, the settings that I felt would give us the best shot. And unfortunately, one of the things I started to realize that as we were flying in circles, trying to get all the assets lined up, um, I realized that it was taking us about three minutes to make a circle. And, um, the problem with that was, is I knew that I was only going to get one shot. Um, because literally one shot, because as everything lined up, by the time we came back around again, it would be out of peak eclipse. So, uh, I was kind of looking forward and I saw the eclipse and I saw the eclipse jet and, and the sun and the moon and everything was sort of lining up. 
And at the very last moment, uh, they all sort of passed within each other. The strobes fired. Um, I hammered down on the shutter and I think we sneaked off maybe a dozen frames and, uh, and then everything sort of went out of, out of alignment again. And, uh, I just remember Dave Hirschman, who was flying the platform plane that I was in. I remember him turning around and, and sort of yelling over the noise of the engines. Did we get it? And, uh, and I looked on the back of the camera and, um, and we did. Uh, it was it was a lot of luck and uh, but but a lot of skill from a lot of people, um, including you know not the least of which was the pilots. So uh, it ended up being a really really interesting cover, um, and uh, you know it's gone on to a, you know to to win a few awards. It was uh, you know I saw it show up on social media. It was really really a cool shot. It was very very unusual, and, and you know it's hard to it's hard to be unusual these days with with air to air photography. Cause you've got a limited amount of setups that you can do and, um, you know, angles. So this one was, this one was a bit unique for me, at least. It, it did turn out to be a remarkable and impressive photograph. Uh, tell me another story of a shot that went really well. Oh, you know, there's been so many, um, you know, I look back through all the photos that I've taken over the years and sometimes everything just kind of comes together. Um, you know, we were discussing just before this, there was, um, we did a shoot probably through, oh, it's probably been closer to five years ago of a, a polished aircraft, meaning that it's uh, metal without paint. So it's highly reflective. Uh, and it's kind of an unusual aircraft. It's a, it's a Beechcraft 18, sort of a, you know, mid, uh, mid 20th century transport aircraft. Um, and it happened to have floats on it so it could land on water. And it was one of those shoots that, you know, you just, it, it seemed like it was kind of going to be a typical shoot, but we ended up having some really amazing lighting, uh, that happened, uh, that evening. And, uh, the, the, sun was reflecting off this kind of marshy land below it. So there was a lot of texture going on. There was light, these like speculars that were um, sort of gleaming off of this marshy uh, surface on the ground. And then, uh, then you had this highly reflective aircraft that was bouncing the light from both directions. And it just, it just ended up being one of those. And we had two really, really qualified pilots that were flying the aircraft too. So uh, the combination of everything coming together like that was, was, you know, pretty magical. I mean, it, it does happen from time to time. <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen from time to time. With uh, all of the planning that, that has to go into your world, how much of your world would you say is serendipity that, you know, the light just suddenly gets to be special? Um, well, you, you know, you can obviously improve your chances. Um, you know, we, we typically shoot during the, you know, the golden hours that everybody talks about. Um, but it's picking, you know, it's picking the right environment, kind of looking at, uh, you know, we're at an advantage because in the aviation industry, we have a lot of resources available in the way of maps and, uh, you know, other aerial photos and, and, uh, and things like that. So we can kind of get a sense of what things are going to look like in the background. But you're right. A lot of it's just serendipitous. I mean, sometimes you're flying along and, you know, there'll be a kind of an odd cloud layer that'll come in and it just, it changes the light for the better. Um, sometimes it changes it for the worse, but, uh, I think a lot of it is, you know, I, I've, I've yet to be able to 100% accurately predict when a shoot is going to go really, really well. We were, we were doing a jet shoot on a day. We had a very, very, um, 
a really narrow time frame that we had this jet available to us. Um, it was a manufacturer's uh, demonstrator, and they were kind of touring it around the country. And it was going to be making sort of a short stop uh, at our headquarters in Frederick, Maryland. And unfortunately, we were just socked in by a bunch of really, really lousy weather. Um, but we knew we had to get the, the shoot done. Um, it wasn't dangerous in any way, uh, weather-wise, but I, I, was, I didn't have really high hopes. So we launched out of Frederick, um, and we started heading west uh, out over West Virginia and then over Virginia. And it was just these lead gray skies, really flat light. But then all of a sudden, as we got um, just outside of West Virginia into Virginia, there started, you know, the light was getting lower, the clouds started breaking up, and uh, and there was this haze that was laying in the mountains that just looked like, almost like ocean waves. Um, and again, it was one of those sort of uh, moments that everything just, even though it, it, it didn't seem like it was going to be a great shoot, um, everything kind of came together and they ended up being some, some photos that I'm, I'm really proud of. They, uh, it ended up being a cover shot for the magazine and, uh, it's just, it looks, it almost looks like the aircraft's flying over the ocean with just these kind of lighted waves, which are actually like the rolling mountains of, of Virginia, um, kind of in the background. So it, it made for a unique photo that, uh, so that, that, that just goes to say, you, you just never know what you're going to get. And, and that is a beautiful shot, indeed. Um, I, I want to get to other stories in just a second, but tell me, uh, from a, just a technical standpoint, um, and I don't want to spend too much time on, on this, but things like filters or shutter speed for propellers, and, and, and I mean, what, what are some of the basics of airplane and air-to-ground air or air-to-air air photography? Right. Um, well, so from from a filter standpoint, I'll just say that I do use um, circular polarizers on my lenses, um, especially during air-to-air shoots almost all the time because, you know, aircraft are very reflective surfaces, even if they're painted, uh, hopefully they're clean, um, and they do reflect a lot of light. So polarizers help with that a little bit. Um, they also help, you know, uh, sharpen hazy backgrounds and things like that. I use, uh, I use a combination of filters, but, um, I, I really like Heliopan and, uh, B&W filters. Uh, they seem to, uh, work the best for me. I lose filters <laughs> occasionally, um, out of the airplane. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot, but, uh, so, um, those need to be replaced from time to time, but yeah, so I'm always using a, a filter as far as shutter speeds and things like that go. Um, I'm trying to shoot at the lowest ISO I can get away with. Um, but as far as shutter speeds, the, the key to shutter speeds when shooting air to air photography, especially if it's a prop aircraft is that you need to slow the shutter speed down enough so that the prop, um, so that any one blade of the prop can make, um, can make a, you know, if it's a two bladed prop, each blade has to travel 180 degrees to get that full, uh, circle, you know, that big prop disc, that big lighted prop disc on the front of the aircraft that people like to see. You don't, you don't want to see the prop stopped and you try to avoid any big gaps in that, in that prop arc. Um, so to do that, you've got to slow the shutter down enough. Now, obviously if you have a two bladed prop, you have to slow the shutter down even more. If you have a four-bladed prop, you don't have to slow it down as much because each each blade only has to make a 90-degree um, arc. Uh, it, it gets a little technical, but the idea is keep the shutter speed as slow as possible while still maintaining sharp photos. And uh, 
And we do that through a couple of means, obviously a little bit of it's trial and error, um, trying to keep yourself as, uh, as, you know, steady and, um, as cushioned in the back so that you're not transferring the vibration from your body to the camera. Um, and I do that through, do you, go ahead. Go on. I was, well, do you use a lot of stabilizing equipment? Yeah. The, the two stable, the two pieces of stabilizing equipment I, I use the, the first and foremost one, I, I use an electric gyro stabilizer. And this is kind of a, this is a sort of a tool that you don't see used outside of, you know, aviation and marine photography very much. And what it is, is it's, it's, it's a gyro uh, that counteracts the movement of the camera. So, you know, if the camera sort of gets um, pushed one direction, this gyro will push it back the other direction. And it actually provides about two stops worth of stabilization. It works along with the stabilization that's built into some of the lenses. Um, but between, you know, having an image-stabilized lens and then having this large gyro stabilizer, uh, on the bottom of the camera, you can usually get two or three stops worth of stabilization. So, you know, if I have to shoot at a 60th of a second to get a full prop arc on the aircraft, um, I, I can usually do that without too much problems. I've even gone down to a 40th of a second or something like that for a helicopter, uh, because helicopter blades obviously turn a lot slower and, and you still want that kind of big disc, um, on the aircraft, but, and the other piece of equipment that I use, um, that, uh, that I didn't for a long time was, I, I ended up buying one of these, uh, sort of orthopedic dog beds, um, that I, that I put on the floor of the aircraft and I sit on that. And it's amazing. Not only is it a lot more comfortable for my, you know, 50 year old bones, but, um, it also sort of deadens a lot of the vibration that would typically come from, uh, you know, sort of come through your body and transfer from your hands or your elbow or something like that into the camera body. So it kind of, it deadens that a little bit. So the dog bed and the gyro stabilizer are probably the two main pieces of stabilization equipment. I don't use tripods or anything in the back of the aircraft during, during air to airs. I, I would have guessed this, the stabilizer. I would never have guessed a dog bed. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, um, I, I now claim it to be a tool of necessity uh, because it's just so much more comfortable than sitting on a, you know, uncarpeted floor of an aircraft. Well, once you say that, it makes perfect sense. But, you know, well outside of my range of imagination for that one. Um, the We've talked about shoots that have gone really well. Uh, there are, of course, um, other shoots as well. Tell me about a shoot that went really badly. Um, well, you know, shoots do tend to go poor sometimes. And, and usually that's, um, you know, that's usually just working with somebody that either isn't, isn't comfortable with being in really close formation. Um, or, you know, it's a situation where, um, I'm just not feeling like, like I'm starting to feel like safety might be being compromised by somebody's, um, somebody being a little overconfident or a little underprepared or something like that. We we've had, we've had shoots, um, that I've stopped. Uh, I think anybody that's a part of one of our shoots has the ability to simply say, Hey, we're going to stop this shoot. And, um, and we'll talk about it when we get back on the ground, uh, because you never know, somebody could just be feeling a little bit ill or something like that. And you, and because we're in such close formation and we're putting everyone else's, um, you know, lives in each other's hands. Um, 
we, we never want to push a shoot beyond everyone's comfort level. Um, we, we have had some, some, even some tragedies on shoots, uh, back in, um, Oh, I'm trying to think it was, it was back in 20, uh, 2015, 2016, I think, uh, we, I was on a humanitarian mission actually with, um, AOPA's editor at large, uh, Dave Hirschman. And we took a trip with a medical team down to Mexico. Um, and although it wasn't during a photo shoot, we had an aircraft that was part of the team that we went down with, uh, strike some power lines over a river. Um, and, uh, I, I, I just talked to the pilot, you know, literally, 45 minutes uh, prior to him taking off and we're discussing some photo shoots we we're going to do later that day. He took off, didn't see the power lines. He had three other um, medical students uh, on board his aircraft and uh, it sheared the, it sheared the wing right off the aircraft. They crashed into the river. Um, unfortunately, myself and Dave were, were two of the first people on the scene. Um, they were able to, re- they were able to uh, get, uh, the three medical students out of the water. Um, they all survived. Unfortunately, the pilot, um, who, who we'd met, um, did not survive the crash. Uh, and it was just, you know, it it was, it was a, a a horrific tragedy. Um, but it did, you know, it is having seen that sort of firsthand and seeing the, what can happen if, you know, poor decisions get made. Um, it definitely, it affected me a little bit, you know, it made me think a little bit more about, you know, my own safety protocol and, and who I work with because, uh, tragedy can happen so quickly, you know, it's before you, before you have a chance to analyze why it's happening or why it shouldn't have happened, it's over. And so you always have to be really careful about who you work with and, and making sure that everyone's confident and qualified to uh, take part in, in air to air photography. It's, it's just, it's not inherently dangerous. Um, but it is something that requires a, a great deal of specialized skill. So. Oh, that that is a touching, uh, moving story. Um, on a lighter note, the favorite place you've ever been? Favorite place? Uh, oh man! You know, as as a, as a photographer, I yeah, say. that that one's tough. I you know I am so fortunate to to be able to travel to so many great areas, um, and and I get to see it from the air, uh, which is even better. But I would have to say, um, probably my favorite place to shoot was New Zealand. Um, I got a chance to go there a couple of years ago. Um, the international aviation organizations meeting happened to be down there. So, uh, we spent, uh, 10 days flying and, and shooting, uh, several stories down in New Zealand. And wow, I, from an environmental standpoint, it, it is just, I don't think that any photographer could create a more perfect, uh, environment than, than New Zealand. It's just, it's got mountains, it's got beaches, it's got volcanoes and, you know, every type of texture, environment, color, uh, that you could ever imagine. So for, for us, you know, even doing like a 45 minute or an hour long flight, um, you can get into like five, six, seven distinctive, very distinctive backgrounds, uh, that look like, you know, you know, one minute you're over something that looks like, desert and the next minute you're flying over snow-capped mountains or or white sandy beaches it's really really an amazing place to take photos that sounds fantastic yeah and there's you know there's a lot of great places even here in the united states i mean moab utah is one of my favorite areas um 
you know, even up into uh, like the northern parts of uh, the eastern United States, Maine, um, all, all throughout New England is beautiful. Florida is a place that we shoot all the time. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of really interesting places. Well, very cool. Uh, I have one last question, but before we get there, I did want to mention uh, listeners that want to look up your work. Your Instagram account is clouds and camera. All is one word, no all underlines. Word. Yes. Yep, cloud, clouds, plural, clouds and camera. Uh, but there is not a website. If you Google Chris Rose photography, you wind up looking at the work of a UK photographer uh, who is not you. Tell me about being uh, a, a full-time employee uh, as a photographer versus an independent contractor. Uh, well, you know, it's for me, and I think for the for AOPA, it works out well because. Um, you know, aviation photography is a very specialized, uh, you know, sort of subset of the photography world. Um, but working, you know, not having, not having to put in the energy to market myself uh, in the industry, not having to worry about, uh, you know, am I going to collect payment from this client or, you know, how am I going to get this equipment shipped across the country to this shoot and, or whatever else. I mean, I'm certainly uh, sensitive to to those kind of um, hassles that uh, other photographers have to go to. And, um, you know, I have a lot of friends and some of which are, are, um, I I should have just stopped there. I've got a lot of friends. Actually, I don't. Uh, (laughs) I've got a lot of friends in the, in the photography industry that, that do, you know, they're, they're not only are they, they're, the photographer for the business, but they're oftentimes also the, you know, accountant, and marketing person for their business. And, and that's tough. That, that, that is tough. And it's, it's tougher more so now. And I think going into the future, it's going to be tough. So, um, being able to focus primarily just on, you know, logistics of my own personal travel, focusing on, you know, the creative aspects of the shoot. Um, you know, I like having, I like not having to worry about things outside of that. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to sort of play the full-time creative. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, you know, and AOPA is a great company to work for. Um, I've been with them for, um, over, over 25 years now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a dynamic industry to work in. Um, aviation's always changing, you know, we're seeing, Things like, uh, you know, electric-based aircraft come into play. You know, drones obviously are um, becoming more and more uh, a part of the aviation uh, environment. And, you know, things are always developing. It's, it's a really dynamic industry to work in. So I I'm, I'm feel very blessed that I've gotten to spend the majority of my career uh, in it. That is wonderful. Again, for everybody, the Instagram account is Clouds and Camera. And Chris, thank you. This photography, we've all seen pictures of airplanes, and yet, at least for me, they never fail to uh, inspire something uh, profound and and deep within me. So thank you for your work, and thank you for your time this morning. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope we get a chance to do it again. Talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Hello, it's Tomasz. I am the editor of Frames. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I can imagine you would like to hear more about what we are currently working on. Later this year, we will be launching a quarterly printed photography magazine. 
It will be a beautifully designed, inspiring publication. I personally truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper, hence the idea of frames. To find out more about frames and to join more than 14,000 photography enthusiasts who enjoy our weekly newsletter, go ahead and visit frames.photography. I would love to have you in our community. Thanks so much.